a collection of everything so big it can never be catalogued or appraised, the loot of the world. You got five seconds to tell me where you buried the loot. Hello looters, welcome to Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. I hope you're all doing great and I hope you've been enjoying our past episodes. This is our fifth episode of the year, sixth if you count our special episode on When Harry Met Sally. So if you're just listening to us for the first time, feel free to browse our past episodes and check them out. For this episode, which we're calling the Disney Loot, we have two great guests, Nicole and Caroline from the Defining Disney Podcast. Let's go! The Disney Loot Hello everybody, welcome to Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. I'm joined today by not one, but two great guests, Nicole and Caroline from the Defining Disney Podcast. Welcome, how are you doing? Hello, good. Hi, we're doing good, thanks. Great, I'm so glad to have you here. This collaboration has been brewing, uh, at least in my mind, for several months now. Um, (laughs) I started interacting with Nicole and Caroline, I think it was around August. 2020, August a of long the last time year. Ago, yeah. yeah, a while ago. Uh, it had been a couple of months since I started my podcast. I think you had started yours around that time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we started in June. Okay, yeah. Well, the thing is, I was asking around Twitter at that time for some film recommendations, and they came up with a couple of good ones. I gave them a shout out on my podcast, and I think I started listening to their podcast around that time, and I think we've been interacting since trading likes and and retweets and whatnot oh yeah gotta get that uh that genuine interaction for the twitter algorithm yeah (laughs) so this is the first uh real interaction so let's get into it why disney oh man (laughs) well why not disney (laughs) yeah (laughs) with with the two of us we've we've been steeped in disney lore and culture and film since we were itty bitty and so it's been just kind of an integral part of our lives and when it came to a passion project that we might want to take on together it was kind of a natural choice yeah the defining disney podcast concept um, is something that's been in the works for several years now it was something that we had originally decided on as as kind of one of those projects to keep us occupied um, and to not stress about other things Uh, so we decided to rank the disney canon and uh, we let it sit for a while and when we brought it back up when we were both sheltering in place in our respective homes we said okay well we need something to do we're a little bored so we decided to pull our passion project back up and make it an actual podcast so we didn't just do it for ourselves but for the rest of the world for them to hear and contribute as well how did you two meet through nicole's husband kevin he was my trainer when i first moved to florida and started working for disney again and we like to say he has a habit of taking in strays so hi i'm a stray former stray (laughs) (laughs) Former stray, now part of the family. And he and I really hit it off um, when he was doing my checkout test for lifeguarding at the Yacht and Beach Club resorts at Walt Disney World. And 
actually like that day he told me he was going to propose to his girlfriend and was telling me all about this big cruise that they were taking funnily enough i had just been on a similar cruise with my mom the previous summer and so i was telling him about all the really cool places in italy and in the mediterranean where he could you know have a romantic moment with her and italy is very special to them because they're both italian and so he kind of had that opening up moment almost right off the bat and within a week i was coming over for dinner hanging out meeting nicole yeah my husband with uh, his habit of taking in strays he vets people for me to meet um, and if they pass that initial vetting then uh, they get welcomed into the fold and once he met caroline it was like it clicked um almost immediately we we were referencing caroline as the little sister that neither of us had so it was pretty organic and then her husband is actually our friend from college and and we kind of got them to meet and uh, we're responsible for that love story and I'm I'm not sorry for taking any credit for it but No, uh, you you absolutely deserve full credit. <laughs> Stephen and I would never have met otherwise. But yeah, we were we're kind of this little, you know, ohana within ourselves, which has been really nice and ever since then it's been like we've always known each other. It's hard to believe that we've only been friends for six years. It feels like we've known each other for much, much longer. Yeah, it's impressive. Such a tight connection. You know, like you said, you met her husband. Your husband is their friend. And so it's pretty cool. That's great. Yeah, I think you were destined for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was absolutely fate. Like, you can't make this stuff up. You can't write it in any kind of movie. It's nope. it's, it's way too coincidental. <laughs> So when you decided to start the podcast, you said you kept shelving the project repeatedly and decided to bring it up now with COVID and whatnot, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it started out as kind of a blog and spreadsheet sort of thing. Spreadsheets are passion of both of ours. And so we initially, you know, being Disney fans and cast member and former cast member at the time, we frequently had discussions on the merits of various Disney movies and which one were our favorites and which ones were the best. And so eventually we sat there like, okay, you know what, we're going to decide, put feelings aside, ultimate objective what Disney movie is the best one? And we came up with this whole rubric and made a whole spreadsheet, color-coded and everything. Honestly, the scoring system was kind of a mess, not gonna lie. But Nicole was kind of handling the spreadsheet half of things and I was writing the blog kind of thing. And we got through three or four films, some of which we were doing from memory because we had seen them recently. But we kind of fell off with it and got busy and you know they got married and we got married and it was just kind of forgotten for a little while and then quarantine happened yeah and uh, thankfully none of us uh lost our jobs during covid and we're very thankful for that um but caroline did have a, a span of i want to say it was six weeks mm -hmm. where uh she wasn't working because of of sheltering in place and lockdowns um so she brought this project back up and when she was doing more research on it she found that a podcast was probably going to be the best avenue to have a little bit more open discussion rather than it just being words on a page. We were able to bring uh, those thoughts and those scores to life a little bit more. And having that podcast medium was a better choice for us. So in the span of 
I want to say it was only about three months, uh, Caroline was able to come up with this whole plan as to how we were going to launch. And uh, we reformed and basically rewrote our rubric. Thank goodness, because yeah, no lie, it was not very good to start, but we made it a lot better. Uh, we talked about, you know, what were what was was going to be our why. Um, and then, you know, basically what launch was going to look like and then, you know, keeping a, a pretty consistent schedule. And then June we launched and it happened so fast. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think we've been doing this for like eight, nine months now. And, and it's a great I mean, I've listened to a handful of episodes. I haven't listened to all because I like to listen to episodes where I've actually seen the movie or I have it fresh in my mind and there Absolutely. are a lot there are a lot that I haven't seen. But it's great. I mean, I love your approach. I think I wrote that to you in one tweet. I love your approach, very methodical, very to the point. So I love it. I, I'm really I'm a huge fan of the show. Thank you. Do you find it hard to disassociate the nostalgia from your objective rubric and your objective approach to the films? A little bit at times. It depends on the film. I think there are certain films that we either together or individually associate with specific memories or specific people or times in our lives that make us feel strongly one way or another about the movie. We're, we're coming up next weekend on recording one of the first negatively associated nostalgia films which is going to be interesting home home on the range nicole has a fun story (laughs) to tell but that that will be coming down the pipeline but we've had several films so far tangled lion king emperor's new groove where we have some very positive memories associated with those films and it can be hard sometimes to separate those feelings out from the rubric but the way that the rubric is designed helps a lot with that yeah and we also have built within our actual scoring guides is the ability to conference on a given score um so if our variance is is larger than what we would expect uh we do force ourselves to conference and say okay where are the variances you know where let's go ahead and look at this point by point let's see where we diverged and why and then let's get within an acceptable range because nobody is going to have uh, the exact two same scores for every subsection of our rubric that's impossible and statistically uh, improbable but we do have the ability to say okay um we didn't meet up and didn't come close enough on music let's go ahead and break it down before we decide on our final score where those discrepancies are and what maybe one of us missed or maybe one of us gave too much credit for because of nostalgia or you know positive feelings and let's come together and and meet and get our scores within that range of compliance to make sure that we're not just you know hundreds on everything and it's my favorite movie so you know too bad we try to try to build that in so that way the the objectivity stays front and center And it also helps that we score the movies individually separately and then average our scores together to get the final scores for each category and then the film's final score. And we do the same thing whenever we have guests. So they have their individual scores for each category and the film. And we average that in with ours as well. So that kind of helps to even out any biases that are present in the scores. There's one thing that Nicole said that leads into my next question, because through the shows that I've listened to, you seem to be pretty much 
on sync most of the time. So uh, my, my question was, has there been a time where you strongly disagree on a film or an aspect of any of those films? Yes. <laughs> We have strongly disagreed on um, a couple of different films. Just a few. Um, I want to say, I want to say Atlantis was definitely one of them uh, with the music category specifically. Well, and there was a particular um, reason for that because yeah. my watch environment here where I'm currently living in my parents' basement is not super quality, uh, particularly with sound because we have so many dehumidifiers and air purifiers and things running down here that it sometimes obscures the sound of the film. And so we, at the time, were not looking at the music separately after watching the film. I was just grading from what I heard in the movie. And there was a lot that I missed because I didn't go back and listen to the soundtrack like on YouTube or something after watching the movie. And we've now put that in as part of our rubric to do because it did cause such a wide score discrepancy. Yeah, so I would say the majority of, of those discrepancies that we have are... If, if it was something like the Atlantis music, you know, we we modified our process. The rubric itself didn't change, but our, our ability to process it changed. Um, I would say most of our variances are with our guests. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because uh, they, you know, have a fresh set of eyes. We do this rubric basically day in, day out. We built it. We know what we're looking for. Uh, our scope can be, you know, uh, set on something. But when we have those guests and they have, you know, a, a different perspective, it, it forces us to look at the film a little bit differently. So I would say the majority of our variances are, are when we have guests and, you know, where we like conferencing with our guests and saying, okay, where did you come up with this number? Um, you know, give me a little bit more of your why, help me understand. And we'll say where we're coming from and, and conference. Um, I would say the only other movie that that we did recently that that we had a, a discrepancy on was tangled yes and that was uh i was i was gonna get outvoted on that one two to one <laughs> because uh steven and caroline that's that's their movie as a couple um so you know they definitely love that film and uh there were a couple things where i was like i just don't get it And, uh, and and there were we we did make some score adjustments. Yeah, we I had to on, make modifications on both on both sides. We made concessions, and mm -hmm. you know, having my husband guest on that episode when when he proposed to me, we were Disney bounding as Flynn and Rapunzel. It's you know obviously clear nostalgia associated with that film for both of us. No, no, definitely. Um, so yeah. it was a little harder in terms of that to step away. But some of the critiques that Nicole brought to the table were also important to acknowledge, and there were concessions made on both sides. Yeah, and it's and it's just important to keep that communication open, you know, and the feelings can be very strong. So it's definitely something where we do have to put aside those differences sometimes and, and it's easier to make concessions and to find something a little bit more in the middle. So we end up with an incompliant score that we're happy with. You know, we definitely, after we have any movie where we have to conference on, we look at that final score and then we look at the category score and say, okay, are we okay with this score? Can we sleep at night? Can we go back on it six months from now and still be happy with that score? And if the answer is yes, then we've done our job right. And we, we always look at how it ends up ranking compared to other films as well looking at it comparatively really kind of helps us put it in perspective and say, yes, we scored this film well enough or low enough. And comparatively within the scope of what we've already done, we're continuing to be 
fair and we're not getting harsher or getting more lenient as we go. So if when you rank it, if you see it's below a certain film, you said, you know, I really don't think this is worse than this film. Or if it's above a certain film and you see, you know, I don't think this is film is better than this one. So you go back and play with the categories a bit. We don't do a whole lot of changing once we have the score. I would say that we do more of a of an analysis of, okay, if we gave, oh, let's say we gave Tangled Okay, so music, we gave Tangled 14.33 out of 20. Okay, compared to some other music that we've scored to date, Frozen, 18.17. You know, is it closer to Frozen than four points? Mm, no. You know, and then when we look at something that's lower, um, The Rescuers, 10 out of 20 for music. Is it four points better than Rescuers? Mm, yes. Yes. Okay. You know, we just look at, because the more data that we have and the more comparisons that we make and, you know, we have all of our previous notes as to what we've scored each movie and why. When we have more of that proper context, it makes it easier to say, okay, this is what we looked at. These were the positive. These were the negatives. And this is what we did for other movies for comparison's sake. Does that align? Um, so we don't do a whole lot of tweaking of a, oh, no, I, you know, quote unquote, I think this movie is better. Uh, objectively, was it actually better? Are we giving proper credit where credit is due? And are we taking points away for valid criticisms rather than feelings. Yeah, I, that's what I love about your approach because that explanation you just gave about how you say, okay, in the specific points on music about these specific films, it's really, really impressive approach to how you come up with all of this. So you two worked at Disney, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're making this podcast. You met your um, partners in, in the Disney environment, right? Yeah, pretty much. Is there an overload point? <laughs> Too much Disney? I think we... So I think we kind of hit the overload point when I left the company. I think that was the moment when I said, you know, if I keep going, if I continue to try and, you know, involve myself in this culture and do it every day, I'm going to burn out. I'm going to get tired of it. I'm going to end up hating it. And I didn't want that to happen, so I left. <laughs> So I, I ended up doing several other things in Orlando. I worked for a gymnastics gym for a little while, coaching that. Um, that's a whole other side of our friendship. <laughs> and then I also worked at Starbucks for a significant amount of time, and working there was what allowed me um, to move home literally as quarantine was happening last year. Yeah, I think that the, the overload point... I haven't hit it personally. When I worked for Disney, it was seasonally back when I was in college. So it wasn't like I did this day in, day out, 40 hours a week plus for, you know, every day of my life. I did it during summers. I worked on weekends. I worked during, you know, school breaks and holidays. And I did the grind. I did the Disney grind. Um, I would work, you know, 70 hour weeks, but I also got a break for, you know, four months at a time uh, once it was over. So I think for me, working for Disney didn't hit a, a burnout point personally. I, I kind of got to leave on my own terms when, when I was actually working for a, a different theme park company uh, that I ended up staying with for about six years. So that burnout point didn't happen for me, but I do have some, some valid criticisms about, you know, the company as a whole or, you know, certain decisions that they make. And it's, it's not always pixie dust, but that's uh, what any company is, you know, at the end of the day, it is a company. Yeah, that's reality. 
Yeah, and I think I think for us it's important that we have a little bit of distance from our time with the company because we are able to look at Disney with a critical eye and recognize and point out in our platform that not everything that they do is super awesome. And they make lots of problematic decisions, and there have been a whole litany of them in this last year in terms of what they've done uh, to cast members, with cast members, with executives in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's been difficult to watch. We're glad we're not part of it, but we still have a lot of friends who are. And it's been difficult for a lot of people, and seeing that hurts us, too. Yeah. I think it, uh, obviously, I'm speaking from the outside, but I think it makes it harder to see the company become this behemoth that it is right now, Mm -hmm. and still maybe make some decisions that are questionable or are problematic to lower tier employees, lower tier, so to speak, employees. Because you're this big company, you have this big monopoly on whatever in entertainment and you're making this decision. So I suppose that makes it harder, even harder. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they are one of the largest companies in the world, one of the largest employers in at least the state of Florida, if not the United States as a whole. And uh, it's at the end of the day, it is a business. It's a corporation. They have to make money. But at the same time, you can do that and still make decisions that indicate that you care about the health and safety of your employees. And there are several decisions in this last year that Disney made that did not indicate that at all. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, when we're looking at just pure market share that they have here, at least in the Florida market, they have over 70% market share. Uh, So when they make decisions, it impacts a large amount of workers that are here. Disney in the Orlando area employs over 70,000 when, you know, fully functioning. So when they make decisions that hurt, you know, a vast majority of that 70,000 workers, that has a significant economic impact also. So, you know, we look at a lot of different things. Yes, at the end of the day, it's a company, it's a business. You have to make harsh and very difficult business decisions. But when we're looking at those difficult decisions, we're also looking at impacting the local economy and the local workforce on a very broad scale. So there's a lot of give and take. At the end of the day, you do have to make the best decision for your company, but there, there is a human aspect as well that you have to take into consideration and how far reaching those decisions can make. When they elect to terminate over 20,000 employees here in the Orlando market, that's taking a huge swipe at the available total jobs and the unemployment rate that's here. Um, I went to school for economics and business, so this type of conversation really engages my mind for both the positives and the negatives. So I think that seeing those decisions being made without seeing what those effects are on, you know, a local economy as a whole, it can be very discouraging because you're going to rely on those same people to come back once you're fully operational. And you got burned pretty hard by that company. Are you willing to go back? It's difficult to say. There's some... I read recently that they closed the, or, or are shutting down the Blue Sky Studios, you know, the division mm-hmm. that they absorbed when they bought 20th Century Fox, I think. The ones that are in charge of Ice Age and Rio and all these films, mm-hmm. and they're shutting it down. So those decisions are 
all across the spectrum, I suppose, of the employees and the workforce of the oh, company. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just theme parks. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, there are other decisions involved here because, you know, how many animated divisions you can have under the same umbrella, right? But why do you think that beyond those decisions and those problems or issues, why do you think Disney stays Disney? Why do you think Disney still has to stay in power in the minds of the people? I think that... It's a several-dimensional issue, but I think in terms of Disney, it's the name brand recognition, but it's also the stories that they tell and the art that they're able to create. The film and TV industries are really where they started, where their roots are, and they have really honored that and continued to push the boundaries of animation, of live-action storytelling, and it continues to be quality entertainment. And people are still going to consume that even if the people making that entertainment are not on the most up and up. We also saw a consolidation effort by Disney at the end of the Eisner era um, in the mid-2000s. Michael Eisner uh, basically greenlit a bunch of different projects, a lot of expansions, and they also saw as a result of that varying levels of quality. Um, so when you decentralize your efforts, when you're looking at pumping out content, you can see a decrease in quality, which is what Disney ultimately saw after Eisner's greenlit ideas. So once Eisner left the company, you saw a more centralization of efforts. They closed a lot of internal organizations and consolidated it back to Burbank, back to Anaheim. There were a lot of local areas that took in all of that extra work. So they scaled down some of their projects because of the resulting of the closing of all of these locations, but you saw their quality start to increase again. So I think that they are trying to avoid the Eisner model of having all of these projects and all of these different cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. And they're trying to maintain that level of quality. You know, are we going to see that things get Disney-fied and, and we don't have as many far-reaching stories or innovative stories like Ice Age or Rio? That's yet to be determined, but I think that it's more in line with the direction that Disney has taken overall since Eisner has left and, and making sure that everything is as centralized as possible to make sure that quality is high. Yeah, and I mean, you see that even just in the canon. Eisner stepped down in 2005, and that's when Bob Iger took over, and... Immediately, the next projects in 2007, 2008, 2009, just in the Walt Disney Animation Studios, were higher quality than what had been coming out in 05, 04. Meet the Robinsons, Bolt, Princess and the Frog were Iger's first three animated features. And when you talk about Princess and the Frog, like that's the start of the revival era. That's been the marker of Disney's rebirth almost to the number one animation studio as uh, Pixar had kind of overtaken them in the in the earlier 2000s. And they're no strangers to those decreases and increases because when you look at their canon, you will see there are many, many dips and ups and downs. I mean, they came out out of the gate strong, but then they dipped during the war, then came the golden era, then they decreased again in the 70s, 80s. They came back with the Renaissance era, then they dipped again in the 2000s, and now they're up again so they're no strangers to that 
How do you think they adjust to those changes? Well, I think one of the key ways, again, is that leadership. You know, the Dark Age really began with the loss of Walt. Like, the last movie that he greenlit was The Aristocats in 1970, and that was the beginning of what we like to call the Dark Age, because everything for about the next 20 years was recycled animation, they were on really tight budget, things were not looking great. And then... Eisner took over in the late 80s, early 90s, and immediately Disney saw this big boom. And with him also came kind of leadership changes at the studio itself. And that has really played a key role as well, having key storytellers and animators in place and keeping the top talent at the studio rather than letting people like Don Bluth, for instance, walk away with this incredible talent for storytelling and for animation. And you also saw it with the rise of music as well. Howard Ashman was part of the Renaissance era and and wrote some of the all-time classics that we know and love for Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. So being able to to retain talent like that is, um, it starts at the top, obviously. You know, Eisner wasn't afraid of having people walk away, um, which is ultimately what led to his downfall, at least from the movie perspective. But I am interested to see now that Iger is is stepping back from the company, what that's going to do for animation for them, you know, particularly in the canon. I think that the revival era has been very strong for them as a whole. I think Ryan the Last Dragon, which came out on March 5th, uh, was also very promising so I think that they at least have enough to sustain themselves for a while but we'll really see in the next few years what the new direction of the company is with new leadership at the top. Yeah we have no idea what JPEG is going to do in terms of storytelling in terms of what his modus operandi is going to be compared to Iger who brought the company so much success and acquired so many high profile properties that have skyrocketed Disney to the monopoly that it has right now. So it's really going to be interesting to see the direction of the company and how that reflects in the studio and the stories it chooses to tell. And that's a perfect segue because (laughs) the next question I was going to ask is about Raya and The Last Dragon. Let's catch you up. My name is Raya. Our lands have been at war for as long as we can remember. Our people never see eye to eye. My daughter, I believe our people can come together again, but someone has to take the first step. Now, in order to restore peace, we must find the last dragon. I wish to join this fellowship of butt kickery. Let's go. We'll have to watch our backs. We're not the only ones looking. Six years of searching. Please, let this be it. Almighty Sisu! Who said that? We really need your help. Ah, I'm gonna be real with you. I'm not, like, the best dragon. Have you ever done, like, a group project, but there's, like, that one kid who didn't pitch in as much, but still ended up with the same grade? Uh, we're doomed. You and the dragon are coming with me. Hmm, my sword here says we're not. broken you can't trust anyone maybe it's broken because you don't trust anyone you just have to take the first step 
What do you think of it? I really enjoyed it. We watched it yesterday, and unfortunately, our safest drive-in theater is not open yet, so we watched it here at home with Premiere Access, and it's a beautiful film. The animation is incredible. The colors are so rich, and I think they really did a good job of giving the Southeast Asian setting its due. I think Kelly Marie Tran was fantastic. Aquafina was hilarious, but also has the chops to give you those emotional moments when they're needed. And her versatility just continues to surprise me. Yeah, and um, we're no strangers to Jame Newton Howard's work in soundtracks. Uh, we gush over him all the time I love whenever that, we have the opportunity in the canon. And uh, I, I think he came out with some more really great music, um, very period appropriate, very uh, region appropriate. I really enjoyed uh, the music and the cinematography. I thought the story was interesting as well. It didn't seem so cookie cutter. Um, and it wasn't this traditional protagonist v antagonist that we love to talk about. It was it was a little bit different. It was more of an adventure story. And I, I liked that change of pace, especially since uh, the revival has really been defined by a lot of Disney princesses again and even though that's great and they definitely have their place um, I like when they take new risks and and don't follow that cookie cutter storyline that you know we all know and love from Disney but is very predictable yeah we've had a lot of strong antagonists and that struggle in a story throughout the revival it's been a while since we had a true like adventure film as we had in the early 2000s and while maybe in box office some of those weren't quite as successful i think that they are among some of our personal favorites and so i can't really speak objectively yet especially because we need to give raya some room to breathe some room to see how well it's going to do in box office reviews what kind of awards it's going to end up winning before we can really set it against our rubric but early thoughts thumbs up positive yeah early thoughts overall positives for sure i really liked it i agree with a lot of your points like caroline said the animation is gorgeous one of the things i'm noticing recently in a lot of animated films is how flawless the water and the hair or things like that that were usually weak points in animation in the past and the animation was really really gorgeous uh, i like most of the characters the voice cast was great if I had any gripes, is that I think the story was a bit predictable, or you could probably telegraph what was about to happen from the start. You know, this place is divided, so they have to come together. And you see that as Raya goes picking up companions along the way, and you see, okay, this companion is from this place, and this companion is from this other place. So eventually, they're going to have to work together. So I think that part was a bit predictable, but I like how it maintained what Nicole said about the trope, so to speak, of the revival era, which has been to present strong female characters, to not necessarily present a, a clearly defined antagonist. That's something that they've done in, in a lot of the recent films. And I like that uh, it maintained that trend. So overall, I enjoyed it. I saw it last night, and I really, really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I also like that there's no... Um... You know, since we're since we're in International Women's History Month, um, I, I like that there was no ultimate goal for, you know, love. Raya wasn't looking for that. You know, the leaders of Fang were women. 
having strong female representation without the end goal to, you know, fall in love or get married. Uh, you know, the, the love and the relationships that we saw were between uh, the princess of Fang and Hart, the princess or the relationship between Raya and her father, um, you know, see, seeing quality relationships that weren't just revolved around falling in love and getting married you know, in this in this super stereotypical heteronormative relationship, it was nice to talk about love for other people that weren't just, you know, romantic. Yeah, that yeah. weren't romantic. They were familial in nature. And that's something that you can go back to, like we said, uh, most of the films in the revival era, you, you get Moana, you get uh, Frozen, where even though there are romantic relationships, the focus of the story is this sibling relationship. Zootopia also doesn't rely on that romantic relationship. So it's great. I like that direction. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I think I also liked that they kind of subverted the dead parent trope was, yes, her dad was turned to stone, but her goal was not to avenge him. It wasn't, you know, I'm doing this because it was his mission and he's lost. It's I'm getting him back. I'm not going to let this trope happen to me, basically. And that's a little bit meta, but also... I really enjoyed it. I want to give a shout out to uh, a Twitter friend or a Twitter follower, uh, Lucy Rodriguez at L-R-O-D-C-C-C. She said, it was good. My kids like it. We've seen it twice since Friday. Wow. Uh, so already we're seeing people seeing it a lot. Gotta get your money's worth. <laughs> One quick question. That's what I was going to ask you about. Do you think this premiere access thing will stay, will remain? I think it's a product of the COVID era. And I think... Once COVID subsides and people are able to return to movie theaters, that it will not be as much of a thing anymore with Disney, you know, putting their major titles on premiere access. I don't think that's their goal. They are moving a lot to streaming as their like primary platform in terms of how much content they produce. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think, you know, having that immediate content access in your home is really cool and is kind of the future of entertainment. But at the same time, there's nothing like having that experience with other people in the movie theater on the big screen. Yeah, I would I would say that they're likely not going to keep it that premiere access to be something that's like that's the only way you're going to be able to get something. I think that it's it's going to be a, a combination if if they move forward with that premiere access for future films, it is going to be a uh, you either have premiere access so you can see it at home or you go to the theater itself. I don't think that it's a bad idea for Disney. I understand their why behind it, um, especially for some of these movies that have already basically been in production for years or, you know, uh, ones that they, they really need to get at least some money back um, on it. I, I understand it. Um, and it, I think it's had varying levels of success. I think that the premiere access was worth it for Raya. I don't think it was worth it for Mulan. Uh, the live action Mulan. So I think that Disney just has to be a little choosier about what films they put on Premiere Access. But I think it'll be here to stay for certain films, you know, in order to get that immediate at home access. I think it makes movies a lot more accessible, though. And I think that that's really important. Yes, to have that, you know, more immediate access. If you know, if, if you're thinking about, you know, parents with kids, or um, people that are homebound, or, or, you know, people that aren't able to get into theaters for whatever their circumstances are. I think having that one time price of $30 is 
way more accessible than potentially, you know, going out even when theaters are back open and and doing fuller capacity. It can be pricey for families to get into a movie theater and have, you know, all of their kids or, you know, all of their other family members and getting snacks and (laughs) getting tickets and getting everybody to stay down and be quiet so they're not disturbing other people. You know, there are all of these different factors. So I think from an accessibility standpoint, I appreciate the premiere access and that I hope that it continues as an option for people if that's a better route for their needs. Yeah, and I think having what they did with Raya in particular having it be a simul release in theaters and also on premiere access is the smart way to go about it because it gives people the choice and if i think most people who can would want to go to the theater and see it particularly because for an individual or for a couple that's probably going to be cheaper but at the same time there are lots of people who theater would not be their first choice and i think the premiere access is a great option for those people i'm really hoping that raya does well enough that we see black widow released in may with this particular format this simul release i am crossing my fingers and toes (laughs) because my girl's movie has been done for a year and it needs to see the light of day dear god please yeah Yeah, i'm looking forward please i love black widow yeah i need that movie i'm a fan i'm a fan (laughs) <laughs> I didn't check numbers, but is it doing that well, um, Raya? I haven't seen particular numbers yet, but I would be surprised if it wasn't doing at least decently with all things considered. Disney didn't market it a whole lot leading up to this weekend, but I don't think they kept it hush-hush either like they have done for some movies. Looks like it was $8.6 million domestic. Uh, 26 million globally. So, I mean, very soft, but still number one this yeah. weekend. So that's only box office yeah. numbers. That's not including whatever they made yeah. off of Premier Access. Mm-hmm. And how do you think it fits? You know, Disney has a formula for their animated films. They have adjusted it through the years, but they have a formula. How do you think it fits the formula, whether it's the current formula, like we were speaking, or, or the formula that they've been using since 1939? I think it definitely has pieces of that same formula that the revival has kind of stuck to with that strong female character, with showcasing non-romantic relationships, with stellar animation, and a sort of mission-based storyline, a quest for something. And I think it also kind of tweaks that a little bit because there are way more side characters in this film than there have been in a lot of the revival films. I probably couldn't even name all of them from the even though I watched it just yesterday and I think that the fact that it's not a musical also kind of sticks out because musicals have been heavy in the revival era I don't think the lack of songs is a bad thing I think that might have been a little too much in this film I think they executed it well without so speaking of the formula uh, let's play a game you want to play a game always (laughs) (laughs) the game is called the Disney formula since there are two of you, we're going to alternate, and I'll ask each of you to choose a Disney film or a Disney formula. If you choose film, I'll mention a Disney animated film and ask you for an ingredient from the formula. Who's the hero? Who's the sidekick? Who's the villain? What's the song? If you choose <laughs> formula, then I'll mention several ingredients of the formula, and you have to come up with what film they're from. Okay? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. I'm down. Uh, let's start with, with Caroline. Film or formula? Okay. Formula. Okay. 
Who are Shensi and Bansai? Film and role. What are they? What film? They are villain sidekicks from The Lion King. All right. They are hyenas. All right. They're also sort of the comic relief because Whoopi Goldberg. Come on now. <laughs> All right. That's and pretty Cheech good. Marin. Yes, and Cheech Marin. The other one is Ed, right? Yes. I just yes. came up with two because I wanted to make it a bit tougher. But <laughs> let's go with uh, Nicole. Film or formula? I'll take film. Okay. What is the antagonist's name from Frozen? Well, uh, the antagonist uh, is ultimately Hans of the Southern Isles. Okay. But as we have uh, mentioned in our podcast episode of Frozen, uh, we actually have... Yeah, shameless plug. uh, (laughs) We actually indicate that... Elsa's trauma is also one of the primary antagonists within the film, um, and how she's processing through that trauma is actually one of the main protagonist v. antagonist points, because Elsa was originally deemed the villain in the original story structure, but when we took it under the microscope, we think strongly that Elsa's trauma is one of the main antagonists as well. Yeah, that was a great episode. I, I listened to it. So no shameless plug. That's what <laughs> that's why we're here, right? <laughs> so everybody should listen to it. And right, that's why I brought that up because I, I knew it was it was gonna stir some discussion. So that's good. Uh, Caroline, film or formula? I'll do film this time. Okay. Who are the villains' sidekicks on The Little Mermaid? Oh man, Flatsam and Jetsam. Yeah, you got they it. Are such, they are such fun <laughs> characters. And I mean, Ursula is such an iconic villain. If yeah. you haven't subscribed to our Kofi membership yet, I highly recommend it. That is where we publish all of our bonus content about a month before it will ever hit any of our public feeds. We just released our International Women's Day episode talking about the real and fictional women that we celebrate in the Disney canon and in Disney history and Ursula is one of the fictional characters that we chose to celebrate. Yeah, we're gonna have to check that out. Nicole, film or formula? Um, I'll take formula this time. Okay. Okay, where is this song from? <clears throat> one song I have but one song One song Only for you So You have a lovely voice. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't say that. <laughs> so one What s- film? So one song is from Snow White. Um it was our very yes. first episode that we did. Our prince from Snow White does not get a whole lot of screen time, but one song is is probably one of the few Disney prince songs that we get um and it's rather beautiful um and I think the one thing that we really lost out on the opportunity for with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was a quality duet um, for uh, the Prince and Snow White um, because they both have beautiful, iconic voices. But I love one song and I love the influx of music that we get right at the very beginning for Snow White. It's a it's a good movie. I remember that was actually the first episode I listened from you, and I agreed with you that the weak point is the prince. The, the characterization of the prince lacks a lot, but overall, it's a pretty good film. I think it's still in our top ten right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it's I think it's tenth. It's on the bubble. Okay, I think it okay. is still currently in our top ten. Caroline, film or formula? Let's go back to formula. Okay, who is Miko? Film and role. Miko, he's Pocahontas' sidekick. 
Okay, you got it. He's adorable. I So Pocahontas was one of those movies where I had all of the merchandise. I had her dress. I had a pop-up tent that I would pitch in my living room that had her face all over it. I had a bedspread. I had a pillow. I had everything. Okay, so you, you got the right question then. It's <laughs> fate. Uh, Nicole, film or formula? Um, let's go ahead and go back to film. Okay. What is the antagonist's name from the Aristocats? So Edgar would be our antagonist for the Aristocats. Um, and he is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so we are both very uh, big animal lovers. If you've listened to the Aristocat episodes, we go on and on about how much we hate Edgar because of how he treats animals. Despicable. Because if you don't treat animals right, yeah, we hate you. You're probably already in our tier of worst villains. Just from that alone. Out of yeah. that alone. From that my, alone. My cat is currently sitting right here next to me recording. <laughs> I, I haven't listened to that one because I haven't seen the Aristocats in, in a long time. But I will check it out and, and then I'll listen to the episode. Just one more round. Caroline, film or formula? I'll take a film. Okay. Who is the main sidekick from the Jungle Book? The main sidekick? Yeah, the main companion to the lead character. I guess you would say that Baloo is his sidekick, but I feel like he and Mowgli yeah. are like equal protagonists for most of yeah. the movie. So I guess if Baloo is also a main protagonist, then Bagheera would be the main sidekick. Bagheera would be, okay. I had those two written as possible answers. <laughs> Nicole, film or formula? Uh, let's go ahead and finish with formula. Okay. So you're going to make me sing again. Excellent. Where is this... <laughs> Where is this song from? Oskindi Yaya Kume Kume. Oskindi Yaya Kume Kume. Oh boy. Go ahead, Caroline. No, I'm not going to answer for you. <laughs> We've watched it though. Oh god! <laughs> no! No! Please don't do this to me! It's that movie yes. I hate, isn't it? <laughs> Ugh, it it's the song. It's not, it's not the bird. <laughs> I know. Look, the Etiquan bird is awful. But like, I... Look. Okay, so the story for Three Caballeros... I, I don't remember if I talked about this on our episode, but... Um, we did. My, my mother hates Three Caballeros. And that is because we were on a Disney cruise when I was growing up. Um, my dad worked for the cruise line for about five years. And we went on a one-week cruise with him while he was working. So we got to play while, while he was doing a bunch of IT work, which was very unfair for him, but... But on the second day, we hit a really bad front and the ship was very, very rocky. And my mother got so seasick, so ill. She wasn't able to, to do basically anything the entire week. She was basically bedridden. And on the cruise line, there was a TV station that just played a set of like five or six Disney movies that they chose for that week just on a loop. And Three Caballeros was on the loop that one week. Well, since she was basically bedridden all week, she would rely on this one station that always played movies, um, you know, to, to give her a distraction. Um, but every time she turned it on, it was the Three Caballeros. And by the end of that seven day cruise, she had seen Three Caballeros so many oh, times um, that she has refused to watch that movie ever again. Uh, because she had to watch it so many times when trying to recover from uh, a severe vertigo and, and seasickness. So 
that that movie is banned in, in my family's household <laughs> for good reason. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So let, let's close with that one. So you did great. You both did great. So let's move to uh, the next portion and let's talk about our Disney loot, the films that we consider our favorite Disney animated films. So we're going to start with number five. We're going to work our way to one. We're going to alternate. Let's start with Nicole and Caroline and then myself. So we're all going to pick five movies, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I would say number five. I'm going to go ahead and throw Emperor's New Groove into number five because there are four others that I think that are iconic Disney that you must watch and five is just going to be a personal favorite that not everybody's going to agree with. Um, So I would say number five for me is going to be Emperor's New Groove. Um, Not because it is, you know, not number one in my heart. It is. But I would say it it is number five. It's a shorter runtime, but the humor is literally my inspiration for my everyday life. There is so much sarcasm and dry humor. And it is one of those movies that is so underrated that not very many people have seen it. It's more of a cult classic. And I absolutely adore it for that. The voice casting is astounding. The music jives so well with it. And there's there's a really good moral to the story at the end of it as well. So I think it, it hits all of those, you know, basic Disney check marks. And then the humor just steps it up for me so well that you're not going to find it in very many films either. That's great. That's a great choice. I thought it would be number one. <laughs> it's number one in my heart. But when we're talking about top five in like absolute Disney movies, it's number five. When it's my turn, I'm, I'm all heart. I'm not going to be objective. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go I was going to say, I'm... I'm going to go a little more sentimental here. My number five is Beauty and the Beast. Bella is my favorite princess. I think it is one of the strongest entries in the Disney Renaissance. And I think when we eventually get around to scoring it, that the scores are going to prove that. The music is iconic. The animation is incredible. The visuals just have such a specific look and feel to them that has not been imitated by any other Disney film and Belle is also just has been such a role model for me in my life she is very independent she's very intelligent and she's not ashamed of that she is a smart girl and she walks around showing it all the time yeah she's a reader (laughs) so am I that's a great choice another great choice so my number five, I, I it was tough for me to choose the number five because I had a bunch of films bunched up at the bottom. My list is going to lean heavily to the Renaissance era. There are gaps in what I've seen or what I haven't seen in a long time. But this one I rewatched a couple of months ago, and it's Bambi. It's a, it's a simple story, uh, but it's beautifully told. I went with this one because even when I, when I rewatched it last year, 80 years after its release, I was really impressed by how they integrated the visuals with the music. I thought it was impressive, the score and how the animation moves the music or the music moves the animation. Uh, I thought it was great. So like I said, I could have gone with four or five others, but I choose this one for that reason. That's a great choice. Okay, so Nicole, number four. Number four, um, I'm going to have to go with Alice in Wonderland. It's a film that we have definitely covered. And, you know, when we put it under the microscope, it didn't, you know, hold up to be to be one of our, our top five or top ten. But I think for sentimental reasons, I think Alice in Wonderland is, is one of my favorites. Um, it has some really great animation. And the artistic imagery that you get from Alice is classic. 
Um, you can't confuse it with any other film. I really love all of the characters that they've brought in, all of the players that are in. Alice in Wonderland is a world full of nonsense. So for those 70 minutes or so that you are in Wonderland, it's a great escape from reality and everything is a little upside down, a little kooky, a little zany, but I love every minute of it. I I think it has one of the greatest villains pre-Renaissance era that we see. I think the Queen of Hearts is fabulous. And I, I also love Lewis Carroll's work. Um, I am also a total book nerd. I read voraciously, but I love that they were able to take that idea of Wonderland and and put it on film. Um, You know, it's not an exact carbon copy and neither was the 2010 live action Alice in Wonderland, but I wasn't looking for a carbon copy. It's Wonderland. It's completely up to interpretation. And I love that they were able to bring that to the silver screen. Okay, it's a great choice. Caroline? For me, my number four is going to be Lilo and Stitch. This one also has some significant sentimental reasons. You heard Nicole kind of refer to us as the Ohana earlier, and that's also kind of what we call our our inner circle on the podcast, our email club. But the phrase Ohana means family. Family means nobody gets left behind or forgotten. Ohana is uh, a chosen family. It's not necessarily by blood, obviously, because Stitch is not related to Lilo or Nani by blood. Um, But he is part of their Ohana, and they sort of build, at the end of the film, this this chosen family of both uh, humans and aliens. And we... The four of us have kind of done that over the years with our network of friends that we had together in Orlando, and we've really leaned on each other, taking care of each other, and the message behind that movie just means the world to me. So it it's definitely deserves a place on my top five. Those are two I, I haven't seen. Alice in Wonderland probably I, I saw when I was a kid, but I don't remember it. And Lilo and Stitch I haven't seen. Oh. So I need to check it out. I know my older brother is a fan. One of my older brothers is a huge fan, but I need to check it out. My number four is Moana. Great choice. Moana. It's a good one. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun first. It's a great film. But one of the main reasons I went with it is the reasons that we discussed earlier. How it subverts a lot of the tropes of past Disney, of classic Disney. Be it the trope of the damsel in distress or uh, having a forced romantic relationship between the characters even when it's not necessary. Or uh, to have a clear evil antagonist, which the film doesn't really have. Even though you can argue that Tamatoa is an antagonist, but he's more like an obstacle. I right. see it more like an obstacle. You know, Tafiti is sold as the antagonist, but you know, she's not an antagonist in the end. A spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> um, but like, like I said earlier, these tropes of the revival era is something that Disney has been doing. And to me, Moana is one of the peaks in, in how they handle that. Plus, it has great songs, some great music that I really love. So, Moana. We are releasing Moana here in the next couple of months. We just recorded the episode a few weeks ago. It scores very well. It's a good one. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, I know that my my top three are going to be um, very, very typical. <laughs> and uh, I'm okay with that because I am a product of the 90s. So uh, the, the Renaissance era is, is very special to me. Um, I would say that my number three is going to be Aladdin. That is one of my husband's all-time favorites within the Disney canon. He's very excited to when we get to record that episode. Aladdin has 
really good representation for our first princess of color, which, you know, it took them until 1992 to get it right. But we love seeing representation (laughs) better late than never, right? And I love Princess Jasmine. I love that she has some fight in her. Um, She's, you know, willing to do what she needs to do in order to, to save her family and keep her circle safe. I love the idea of Aladdin being a street rat and, you know, kind of conning his way to the top. Um, with the help of his sidekicks, uh, the genie, we oh, could man. go about for hours talking about how Robin Williams was everything to that role. And that's really one of the era-defining characters that has such longevity. So I would I would say that that movie is nothing without Robin Williams, but it brings so much more to the table. We get some really great cinematography as well in the Cave of Wonders. Um, there's a couple panoramas of Agrabah with the castle right front and center that is just beautiful. And I love the result of that story as well. You know, the, the result is that Jasmine is able to choose the person that she loves to be the next uh, sultan of Agrabah, that they can be together. It doesn't matter their status or, you know, socioeconomics, anything like that. It's it's about who you truly love. And the music is spectacular. Oh, yeah. I mean, come yeah. on. Who, who doesn't love Friend Like Me or A Whole New World or one jump so like it's everything just everything about it is is wonderful okay i would say my number three we're getting now into my deep cuts because i i grew up a child of the 90s but my disney education was very much based in the movies that my parents love and that they grew up on and they were children of the dark ages so my top three films are actually all dark age films which is really funny um so my number three pick is robin hood it did not hold up under our rubric at all but sentimentally it is uh very important to me and very great to look back on it was one of my favorites as a child robin hood as a historical figure has always been just a a legend that i am fascinated with and explored a lot of the lore in and all of the different interpretations when i was younger and definitely played pretend robin hood in my backyard with my little brother when we were growing up but he's also a favorite of my dad's So that was how I was first introduced to the Robin Hood film in the Disney version. And it has been a a sick day staple in my house since I can remember. You're going to get a lot of backup when we go to what Twitter thinks of Robin Hood. So you're going to get some backup. (laughs) Um, My number three is The Lion King, an easy one. Lion King has all the elements of the Disney formula, I think, at peak level. Uh, it has a compelling story, has great characters. The animation is flawless, starting from the introduction of the Savannah. Some thrilling action set pieces, uh, great music. The voice talent is also top-notch. I mean, you have James Earl Jones, you have Jeremy Irons, the top of the game. And it's just a perfect mixture of fun, thrills, and emotions. I mean, everybody will come up with Mufasa's death as an iconic moment in Disney history. So Lion King is my number three. Great choice. Yeah. Nicole? It's an excellent choice. Uh, My number two film is actually um, my mom's favorite film, which is uh, Beauty and the Beast. And I absolutely adore Beauty and the Beast partially because it reminds me of my mom and that will always be special to me. But I think that Beauty and the Beast is a a classic story. And I think after all of the retellings that we've had, 
Disney's version, animated version, is the one that stands out as the winner, the number one. Uh, You have iconic music that Howard Ashman literally put his heart and soul into, and you can hear it every step of the way. I think that there was, you know, really great acting. I think the story is beautiful, and I think that it's a multi-layered message as well. If you have ever been in an outcast situation or you are not following the main fold and seeing that conflict come through, people not accepting you or, you know, isolating yourself because of your differences, I think that the Beast is a very strong character that you can empathize with. Because, yes, he's terrible. We have the whole Stockholm Syndrome conversation that we can have with Belle, but at the end of the day, the Beast goes through a learning process that anybody can relate to, and the transformation at the end is, you know, the wrapping up of the story, but the Beast learns to love himself and love others um, through this really beautiful telling and through Belle being there with him and Belle seeing him as more than just this terrifying monster. And then also Gaston is a fantastic villain, so obsessed with himself and his goals, wanting to be with Belle the rest of his life to fulfill his dreams and uh, literally stopping at nothing in order to get what he wants is a fabulous villain story. And um, I'm also a huge fan of, of the musical that we got as a result of uh, that film, oh, yes. Beauty and the Beast on Broadway ran for quite some time um, before it finally closed. But if you want to talk about a great thing and, and enhancing it in ways that you never thought you could, Beauty and the Beast on Broadway is it. So uh, there's a lot of sentimental value uh, with Beauty and the Beast. That's why it's number two. It's a great choice. Currently. For my number two, I actually have another British legend I want to pay tribute to, The Sword and the Stone is my number two pick, I think, in terms of the tellings and retellings of The Legend of King Arthur. I think it is one of the most unique takes, with Arthur being a relative weakling and nobody in leading up to discovering the stone. This version of Merlin is also one of my favorites. He's hilarious, and he's really become an icon within Disney history. And you don't really think of music when you think of Sword in the Stone, but it has some really catchy songs that I find myself singing just at random at times. And the the Sherman Brothers really did the movie uh, a favor in terms of making its place in the canon with some of those songs. It's mostly Merlin that's Higginous Figginous slaps, man. <laughs> yes, it does. It really does. And honestly, you know, the animation's not super great. A lot of it's recycled, but the heart of the story is there, and that's what really makes it for me. I remember that being a childhood favorite of mine, but I haven't seen it in a long time, so I really didn't consider it. It's been probably 30, 30 plus years since I've seen it. So Definitely worth rewatching. Yeah. So my number two, this is my nostalgic choice, but one that I really, really, really couldn't leave out. So it's The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. 
This is a film, I think I mentioned this on the episode where, because it's the one that you recommended to me. Yeah. And I said to you, you know, when I was a kid, we had a bunch of Disney's LPs that we would play constantly. We had the Rescuers, the Aristocats, we had a bunch of others, but we had many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, and this is the one that I pretty much wore down. Even if I don't remember if I saw the film back then, I knew the dialogues by heart, I knew the songs by heart. So when I rewatched it last year, I was surprised by how well it held up for me even at 40 plus years the film is very child oriented but I love the humor I love that childlike humor the earnestness in which these characters interact I also love how different it is from other films because you know yes it's pretty much a bunch of stories all spliced together but I love how the characters interact with the narrator or the book you know how mm -hmm. they jump from page to page it's and very meta yeah the letters drop on them and all that stuff I really love that that's something I don't think we see in any other film that I can remember from the Disney canon but I think everything is done in a very creative way and the songs I love them I can probably sing all the songs by heart like I said so that's gonna be my choice I think it's great like I said I think it held up pretty well for me but mostly for how it transports me back to my childhood yeah Winnie the Pooh is great yes so number one Nicole <laughs> um so my number one is um I don't think it is any more deserving of the number one spot, um, which is going to be the Lion King. And just like Beauty and the Beast reminded me of my mom, Lion King reminds me of my dad. Uh, my dad's favorite movie is actually Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but I associate Lion King most strongly with him. And that's because growing up, both of my parents worked and they worked many, many hours in order to make sure that, you know, all of our needs were taken care of. But that meant that there was a lot of driving around to drop me off at school, driving around, dropping me off at my grandparents' house so they could watch me while my parents worked. And uh, there was a, a lot of hustle and bustle that I remember. But one of my favorite memories as a child is being in my dad's car, listening to the Lion King cassette tape and singing along at full volume to every single one of those songs and then quoting all of the lines <laughs> in between. Uh, so before Be Prepared, we would do no king, no king, la 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 la. And, you know, I'm surrounded by idiots. There are so many moments that my dad and I would quote in the car. And we did it with lots of Disney Renaissance films. Don't get me wrong. There's not one that um, that, that was left out. We did absolutely everything in, in the Renaissance because we had cassette tapes of all of them. But Lion King is probably the one that we did the most. Um, and then there was also at Magic Kingdom, one of my very first trips to Disney World, there was a little Lion King show that they did in the spot where Disney's PhilharMagic is now. That was Lion King themed. And my first trip to Disney World was in 1994. So I know that it was, you know, around that time, one of my very first trips to Disney. And I still remember seeing this little Lion King show. So I'm able to associate it with so many happy memories of my childhood, my young childhood, that it's it's one of the first things that I can just vividly remember. You know, the film itself is spectacular. We can sing its praises all day. The music is wonderful. The story is iconic. If you try to convince me that uh, Mufasa's death is not one of the most tragic scenes in all of uh, film history, I, I will probably just say that you're wrong. It is one of the most devastating and tragic scenes in film history. Definitely one of the most tragic animated films, but even compared to live action, it's, it's up it's, there. It's devastating, but I, I think that it just holds up so well 
and rewatchability factor is a, is a huge thing for my top five overall. But Lion King is just one of those that it is so easy to turn on and rewatch over and over again. It spawned so much after that. Lion King 2, Lion King 1 and a half. I mean, uh, Festival of the Lion King at Disney's Animal Kingdom that we've talked about. Also, Broadway musical that is still running to this day. Barring COVID restrictions, it is it is one of the longest running Broadway musicals of all time. And I mean, that's putting it in the, in the likes of, you know, with Phantom of the Opera. So we're talking just sheer titans of the Broadway industry with the Lion King of all things. And I've been able to see it on Broadway. I've been able to see it touring a couple different times. So the Lion King itself just holds so much for me. Um, and it is easily Disney's magnum opus. So I couldn't choose anything else to be number one. I will be very surprised if anything knocks it off of the top spot of our ranking chart. <laughs> uh, it's, it's gonna be I, I will be it's very be surprised. Tough. There are a couple that could do it that we still have yet to talk about, but uh, I will be very you mean surprised. a couple others that are in my top yes, five? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, Caroline, what's yours? My number one might be one that you've never heard of. It is The Great Mouse Detective. Essentially, it's a mouse's retelling of Sherlock Holmes. It stars Basil of Baker Street and Dr. Dawson instead of Dr. Watson. And he actually lives in a mouse hole underneath Sherlock's apartment on Baker Street. He is a mouse detective and he, his arch nemesis is Radigan. Uh, if you are familiar with Sherlock Holmes lore, these names sound very familiar as they're very close to some of the names in classic Sherlock Holmes, but it's actually based on a children's book that was written sort of as a mouse's adaptation of Sherlock Holmes. It is not the best known film in the Dark Age by any means, but it also was one of the last. It really preceded that return to the Renaissance. It was released in 1985, so just four years before The Little Mermaid really kicked off that Renaissance period for Disney. And you can see the building blocks. You can see them building up to this big breakthrough. The story is great. The It's not a musical, but the score is fantastic. And I would know it anywhere. Like in even if just like it were playing faintly in elevator music or something, like I would know it. And as soon as the overture starts, you get filled with this big sense of adventure and excitement and something's about to happen. And it's, I, again, I'm a big book nerd. And so pretty much all of these are like literary adaptations that I've chosen, except for Lilo and Stitch. So it, it kind of goes all together as a set, especially these top three. I haven't seen it, but it's a great choice. Oh, you should definitely watch it. No, definitely. I'm on a quest to watch all of the Disney animated films. So I'm slowly going through, uh, but I plan to, to watch them all. My kids are ahead of me, actually. They've seen pretty much uh, a lot of films. But I'm trying to, to catch up with all the ones that I haven't seen or the ones that I've seen a long time ago and don't remember. So my number one is Aladdin. I can't say enough about Aladdin. It has been my favorite since the 90s. I echo what Nicole was you that had it on your list, right? I echo all of the things that Nicole said. I think this is Disney formula at peak level also. The story is thrilling. I love all of the characters. Mm -hmm. The action set pieces are great from Aladdin running from the guards in Agrabah to the escape from the Cave of Wonders, which is a gorgeous scene in terms of animation. The songs are all excellent. They're fun and catchy. I actually have the CD soundtrack and I listen to it often. 
even now I have the CD store somewhere because we don't have <laughs> CD players anymore but every now and then I just look for it on YouTube or something and I put it on because I love it and like Nicole said Robin Williams what can we say about him I mean I think this is one of the most perfect casting choices ever to put him as the genie and to see how that pretty much kick-started all the barrage of stars that have come to guest star in Disney movies since because that wasn't the case. I mean, Robin Williams was the first one that started this trend to look for Hollywood actors, A-list actors, you know, to star in these roles. But the job that he did as the genie is just something, I don't know, I, I don't think there's a casting as perfect as that. Yeah, he really laid the blueprint for the wisecracking sidekick for the rest of Disney history. And nobody's lived up to him since. Not at all. So those are our Disney loots, our top five animated Disney films. All great choices. So I thank you for sharing that. I went and asked on Twitter for people to share their favorite Disney animated films also. So I'm going to share what I got. My friend Kevin McNamara at Laidback Mac has to be Snow White. The animation is spectacular. My friend Janiel Jose at Janiel underscore Jose, he said Oliver and Company. Not I Disney love that best, film. But I love it. And the song Why Should I Worry is so good. Billy Joel, man. <laughs> Great icon. That's another one I haven't seen. It's, it's a good one. We don't have it on the schedule yet, but we already have a fellow podcaster who has asked to guest on that episode because he oh. enjoys it. It's a fabulous movie. The people at It Goes Down in the PM, they said, I'm still to this day the only woman in my family, dead or alive, to have ever served in the military. So the idea of a woman who broke tradition, ran away, and joined the military was intriguing to me. Obviously, my number one favorite Disney animated film is Mulan. Great choice. Another excellent choice. My friend Alex at Art by Alex J, he said, hands down, Beauty and the Beast. It works perfectly on a surface level. Great Disney animation, excellent songwriting, memorable characters. There is so much going on, but it's all perfectly in sync. Pick Disney. Absolutely. My friend Ken at InterKen, he said, not only is Beauty and the Beast a delight, but it's a genuine expression of care for queer children who feel alienated from their families or their peers. I praise Howard Ashman for sneaking this subtext past the bean counters. <laughs> Disney, Disney has never employed a better storyteller. Yeah, Ashman definitely taken from us way too soon, yeah. but what he contributed for Disney in such a short amount of time is indescribable how much of an impact it had on so many people uh my friend sylvie at sly underscore wit she said 101 dalmatians why nostalgia as a kid i used to fall asleep to stories and or music on a bedside turntable and one of my favorite albums was songs and dialogue from the movie great choice my friend Leonard at Monsieur Marlowe, he said, I was more of a Pixar kid since I grew up when Disney animation was at a creative low point in the 2000s. But when I was very young, like kindergarten age, I used to be obsessed with Winnie the Pooh movies. Also really like Robin Hood. Yay. <laughs> My friends at Best Film Ever podcast. We love them. Yeah, they're great. They say when I ask about the best or the favorite Disney film, they say, oh, that's loaded. As of right now, my favorite is Robin Hood. Yes, excellent. More reason to love them. <laughs> we keep meaning to put together something with them, but we haven't yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Scheduling yeah. conflicts, man. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all tried. Uh, my friend Jake Lemberg at Spade Archer Jake, he said, this is not Stalia talking, but Mulan. Combine some memorable musical numbers and gripping action scenes. Also, if Pixar is included, my choice is obviously Toy Story. 
I said to him, I don't think it's nostalgia. I mean, Mulan is one of the most well-received films of the Disney animated canon. Yeah, it's second in our objective rating. So, like, it's not just nostalgia, dude, I no. promise. You're right, objectively. The film is really good. Yeah, there's so much good there. Uh, finally, my friend Tom at Death Heaven, he said, having no kids of my own, I have a bit of a detachment from older Disney films. I can appreciate the artistry of Snow White and Bambi, for example, but they do not seem as charming to me as when I was much younger. Additionally, the humor is less grown up, for lack of a better term, so these days, at the ripe old age of almost 59, I'm more into it for the humor. Thus, more recent Disney films interest me more. I have always love The Lion King, which for me sort of straddles the line between old Disney and new Disney. It tells a good story, the music is fantastic, while the humor, I think, is still geared more towards children. So my other favorite Disney films these days are films like Cars and Bolt, which is hilarious. Cars obviously speaks her about Bolt is a favorite of my wife. Oh, we have, we cannot wait to go through Pixar's canon because there is, there is so, so much to unpack there. Yes, we'll definitely be expanding to them once we get through the canon. Okay, okay, that's great. One last thing I want to get through because this came in the nick of time because I was asking people about their thoughts on Raya. My friend Ario at Ario's Positive POB, he said modern Disney classic, the animation is flawless, the message of togetherness is one that the world needs right now. That's about Raya. So, that's great, that's it. What are the plans for the podcast, short term and long term? Oh man, so short term, we have episodes continuing to release on the main feed every two weeks, and then our bonus content releases in the in-between weeks on our Kofi membership. We are also starting to publish some of those from last month into our main feed. Um, so we just released the listener-created episode about Lion King from several podcast friends about the impact that that franchise has had on the world and on them personally. And uh, this coming week, we are releasing Zootopia. Zootopia which will be a pretty good one. It scores pretty high, uh, particularly for a less formulaic film. So pretty excited about that one. Long term, we have planned out through Q3 this year. So we have some pretty exciting ones coming up. Season three will start this summer and we are kicking that off with Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin? I can't remember. I believe we are starting Q3 with Cinderella. Oh, Cinderella. Yeah. That's what it is. We are starting season three with Cinderella this summer, but season three will also feature at Aladdin. least Aladdin, if Look not also Beauty and the Beast later in the year. Yes, we're very excited about it. Uh, we have some pretty cool guests coming up to join us. Um, Chris Revel from the Let's Chat podcast will be joining us in a few weeks for Lady and the Tramp. And the other Chris from Let's Chat, Chris Ball, uh, will be recording with us in a couple of weeks for Saludos Amigos. Um, oh, and Don from the Game On podcast is also going to be joining us uh, in Q3 for Wreck-It Ralph. That's great. And where can people find you on the internet? Plug away. You can find us on Twitter at Defining Disney or on Instagram at Defining Disney Podcast. You can also find us on our website, DefiningDisneyPodcast.com. And from there, you can join our email Ohana. All you have to do is click the Join Our Ohana button, enter your email. We have some cool freebies that we will send you, a calendar that shows you all of our upcoming movies and watch nights, 
and a sample of our rubric so you can see exactly how we score our films point by point and see some examples of the notes that we've taken over the over the months. We also have a Ko-fi membership like I've mentioned a couple of times so it'll be ko-fi.com slash defining Disney and you can support us there. That $5 a month will get you access to all of our bonus content as well as our Discord server where you can talk to us personally face to face. If you are willing to donate $10 a month, we actually do office hours every Wednesday where we will hop on voice chat um, with our members and talk with them about what we're working on, what's going on in our lives, really get that personal relationship going with our audience members. We are really enjoying that right now. We do that every Wednesday night at 8.30. So if you guys are interested, feel free to head over to our Twitter at Defining Disney and all of our links are in our pin. Also, our watch nights that we have every other Thursday night are really important for us. We do a watch night together as an Ohana uh, when we have a new movie on our list um, that we're going to be doing an upcoming recording of. Uh, We do watch nights every other Thursday night. Um, So our upcoming episodes that we're going to be doing watch nights for is The Jungle Book on March 11th and then Fantasia 2000 on March 25th. So if you are able to join us, we normally do Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And all you do is hashtag DDP watch night and we're able to see any type of thoughts and feelings you have uh, while watching the episode or watching the movie with us in real time. So um, we love seeing the interactions that we have with our current viewers and uh, we love seeing all of the thoughts and feelings that everyone has while we're watching it and you know obviously we take our own thoughts and ultimately that goes into the rubric but we love seeing those real-time reactions from our community so please join us for that especially if we have an episode of um, a movie that you haven't seen yet but you're interested in or if we end up choosing one of your favorites Yes, we love to hear perspectives, especially from either people whose favorite movie is the one we're watching or people who've never seen it before, really get those fresh eyes on it. And we do read those tweets on our episodes every week from the people that participate in our watch night. So if you want to be featured in an episode, that's the way to do it. Okay, there's uh, a lot of stuff to look forward to. That's great. So everybody, if you haven't listened to Defining Disney Podcast, you have to listen to them, follow them, and share their links, and, and just spread the word and join their Ohana. Okay, it's been a lot of fun to chat with you. I wish you the best with the podcast and in your lives. And I hope we can collaborate again in the future. Absolutely. This was really fun. Thank you, Carla. Yeah, I loved this. Thank you. I had a lot of fun too. Thank you very much. Well, that was it for the Disney Loot. Once again, I want to thank Nicole and Caroline from the Defining Disney Podcast for their time. Had a great time talking with them. I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that many of us have a special connection with one or more Disney films because we associate them with special moments from our childhood and from our lives. Whether it's a film that reminds us of our parents, or a turntable we used to sleep with, an LP we listened to when we were kids, or characters we dressed up as for our engagement, or that we identify with for how they ended up breaking barriers. That's part of why I commend the Defining Disney host for taking up such a daunting task of trying to look at these films objectively. Remember to follow them on Twitter and check out their podcast and website so you can stay up to date with their show. As for me, you know you can find me on Twitter at TiffCGD and the podcast at TMML2021. You can also follow me on Instagram and Letterboxd. Remember also to share the podcast so more people can join us in the loot. 
Finally, stay tuned for our next episode, The March Loot, where I'll cover the loot of films I'm seeing during the month, and our first episode of April, where we will have another great guest. Stay tuned for that, thank you all for listening, and keep looting! And so we come to the last chapter, in which Christopher Robin and Pooh come to the enchanted place, and we say goodbye. Goodbye? Oh no, please, can't we go back to page one and do it all over again? Sorry, Pooh, but all stories have an ending, you know. Oh, bother. Yes, the time had come at last. Pooh, promise you won't forget me? Ever? Oh, I won't, Christopher. I promise. Not even when I'm a hundred? How old shall I be then? Ninety-nine. <laughs> Silly old...